0: Welcome to today's podcast from Coastline Calvary Chapel in Gulf Breeze, Florida. We hope this message encourages you and brings light into your life.
1: So I'm not Pastor Brian Brotherson. but I just want to say a couple of things. Um, I, I met Brian, I don't really remember how many years ago, but at a conference we were doing together in Australia. And um, was just amazed at his, his sincerity, his honesty, and his love for the scriptures. And I've kind of followed him for many, many years. Uh, he has become the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He leads the uh, Calvary Chapel Global Network and he is from the very beginning of his time in ministry, a missionary. He went into Russia when the Iron Curtain fell. He began to plant churches over there. He's planted churches in Yugoslavia. He has a huge ministry in Europe and to the planting of churches there. And he's just uh, also a pretty fair surfer too, if I could say. Grew up in the Huntington Beach area. Uh, and just uh, uh, an amazing ministry, how God is using his life even today. So I would ask you to give a warm welcome to Pastor Brian Broderson. Thank you. <laughs> so we, we had a similar format like this when Pastor Ray Bentley was here. And we want to just take some time and and ask questions and do like a, a sort of interview with with Brian and talk a little bit. And I thought the first thing that we would do was uh, Brian just ask you uh, tell us about well, how did you come to Christ? I mean, tell us a little bit about that story. To me, that's always so interesting to hear how people come to Jesus. Yeah, yeah I. I think my life uh, was
0: very similar to John's life in a lot of ways, just on another coast. We're a few, I'm a few years younger than he is, but um, you know, kind of just grew up there on the west coast in a surf community, and my life was pretty much about one thing, and that was surfing. And um, and you know, as a teenager, you're kind of just wondering like. Well, you know what? Is there is there anything beyond surfing in life? And you know what might I do uh, in the future? And at the time uh, when I was in high school, uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, was it was in the midst of a you know like a revival, honestly. And so there were all of these young people a little bit earlier in the late 60s early 70s they were hippies and they were they had a lot of hippies had become Jesus freaks and they were kind of freaky actually and so I was a little scared of them you know I I thought the Jesus message was okay but the hippie part of it was like no I don't want to be a hippie you know I'm a surfer so Um, I I shied away from that but but back in those days uh, Pastor Chuck Smith was the sort of the key person in this revival that was taking place, and they were building a, a church over in the Costa Mesa area, the church that I pastor now. And during the time that they were building it, they had to go into a tent, and so they set up this massive circus tent at, that held about two thousand people, and it was packed full every night of the week. and And people would come, you know, and say, "Hey, let's go to the tent." And I thought, you're never going to get me to a tent with religious people. That just sounded like one of the freakiest things I'd ever heard of. And I thought, because I was, I was raised nominally as a Catholic. So to me, hey, if I want to go to church, I'm going to go to that nice Catholic church over there. I'm not going to some tent somewhere with a bunch of freaks in it. And... Uh, <laughs> So I, I was pretty resistant to the whole thing. You know, I wasn't warming up to that at all. Uh, but as time goes on, you, you know, you just start sensing more and more the futility of life. I would say the, the one thing, you know, the one person in Scripture really that I, I identify most with is, is a woman, actually. But, <laughs> and it's not the Virgin Mary. Uh, but <laughs> it's the, the woman at the well. Because you know, the woman at the well, her situation was, it was an insatiable situation, right? She couldn't be satisfied. And you know, like Jesus said to her, if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. And and I kind of found that that was my life. I was, everything I'd pursue, I, I kind of did okay at everything I did. And then once I attained it, I just thought, wow, you know, that didn't really satisfy like I thought it was going to. So I was on this quest to find out, what is life about and what, what does it really mean? And um, so the Jesus thing was sort of swirling around me, but I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to that. But at the same time, God was actually working in me personally, and he was convicting me. Uh, I, you know, I was living a pretty sinful life, but I felt convicted about it. I just thought I shouldn't be living like this. I, I just sort of knew that. And then to make a long story short, I think really the, the major turning point for me was I had, uh, and, and in those days, everybody was talking about Jesus coming back. I mean, that was kind of like the main message you heard. Jesus coming back. Jesus coming soon. Everybody was saying that. And one night I had a dream that Jesus did come back. And all I knew was that I was on the wrong side of that situation. And And I woke up probably about 3 in the morning, uh, my bed sopping wet from sweat. And the dream was so vivid and real that I couldn't believe that it w- that it was a dream. When I woke up, I just had to lay there and think like, wait, I'm awake because it was such a real experience and it frightened me to death because I, I knew that Jesus had come and I wasn't ready. So this really began to weigh on me and it wasn't uh, too long after that, that there, you know, there came a moment where, um, I told you a little bit about that story. You know, I, I had a friend who was in a pop band and they were playing up in Hollywood and they were about to make a record and, but he was suicidal. And so he contacted me and said, you know, I want to kill myself. And his parents had become uh, charismatic Catholics, and they, they were like Jesus freaks. And even though I wasn't really saved at this moment, I knew that this guy, my friend, I knew he needed the Lord. So I said, his parents had moved from Huntington Beach to Phoenix, Arizona. I said, you need to go visit your parents, and they're going to help you. And sure enough, he did, and they did. And after a few weeks there, he called me on the phone, and he said, oh, praise the Lord. I'm born again. It's wonderful. And he said, so when did you get born again? And right when he said that, it was like an arrow pierced my heart. And I knew I wasn't born again and I needed to be born again. But I didn't have the guts to tell him I wasn't born again because I'd been telling him he needed Jesus, you know. (laughs) So so I just sort of paused and I put the phone down and I said, Jesus, I want to be born again. And then i picked up the phone yeah yeah i'm born again you know it's great (laughs) yeah it's awesome (laughs) and he came home from arizona and him and another friend uh i told john about him he was best uh he was the best high school surfer in california he won the state championship four years in a row and us three guys we got an apartment together and we started reading the bible and praying and inviting our friends uh, to come over and we started sharing the gospel with them And about six months we had about 50 of our friends who had come to Christ, stuffed in this little apartment, so it was yeah. a pretty wild
1: time. That's that's an amazing story. Uh, completely lost, uh, religious Catholic, and um, yeah. So so you come to Christ now? What year was that? Do you remember? remember. That
0: that year. So I had visited. Uh, you know, I had visited Calvary Chapel in 1976. That was the first. I graduated in 1975. 1976, I visited the church. because so that's when you got born
1: again in 76. No, 76. no 79.
0: Yeah, so 76 I visited. It was more like there were some really cute girls, so I'd go over once in a while to check it out. And, you know, you're kind of looking for a good girl, and you figure the church is the place to go. <laughs> but, you know, still, I was doing my own thing. So, yeah, it was 79
1: when I got so, born so again. So 1979, you get born again, and fast forward, how do you end up from a surfer who gets saved by a born-again Catholic guy (laughs) who just said, I'm born again, you put the phone down and prayed, and now you're born again, Uh, and you're getting your friends all coming to the Lord, and somehow you end up being a pastor, I mean, I know that you you moved to Vista, and for 13 years you pastored a church that grew to over 2,000 people. Yep. So how did you end up in ministry? ministry? Yeah. Well, I, from the time, literally
0: from the time I got saved, because during, during that time from like 76 to 79, I, I actually would read the Bible occasionally. And, I, you know, I kind of knew that this was, I knew that God was the answer, but I just didn't really know how to get there. And I didn't want to go the way a lot of people were going. So I'd read the Bible. And, uh, but when I, when I really got born again, it's like all of a sudden, everything I'd read over the past couple of years, it just came alive to me. So I found myself with this group of people that were coming to faith, I found like I I sort of became like the pastor over them because everybody would just say, well, Brian knows, you know, Brian read the Bible. Brian knows what the Bible says, you know, and I didn't really know I knew like 10 verses, you know, or something. Uh, But, um, you know, people would come and ask me questions and I would answer and then I just kept kind of digging deeper. I just, you know, that born again experience created a really insatiable appetite in me for the word of God. And even though I, I didn't get born again at Calvary Chapel, because I had visited, I knew intuitively that I needed to go there because I knew I needed to know the Bible and I knew they taught the Bible there. So, so that's what I did. I, st- I started going to the church. And then um, I met this young girl, uh, young lady, at a, a home Bible study. It was on, um, it was literally January 1st, 1980. And I remember it well because on December 31st, that's my birthday, every every year on my birthday, I would sell, I would uh, treat myself to an entire day of surfing. I would not go to work, and I would go surfing for the whole day. And that particular uh, day before I had had a surfing accident, so I had some stitches in my foot and I was hobbling around on crutches. And it was New Year's Day and we were trying to find something to do. And somebody, oh, I think there's a Bible study over here. So we went. And as we were walking up, there was this really cute girl that was walking out. And I thought, well, why is she leaving? I'm just getting here. And uh, she left. We didn't talk or anything. And I went in. And then the next week, because it was a really cool Bible study, uh, we went back again. And she was there. So I started talking to her. And I thought, wow, this girl really, uh, she knew God. And I just knew, man, this girl knows God. She's telling me what the Bible says. And I'm like, well, I'd never met anybody like this before. And um, The next week, came back, and the same thing was going on, and uh, my friend that was with me, my surf buddy and my my best friend, who ended up being the best man at my wedding, uh, he loved Pastor Chuck, and he was like a kind of a Pastor Chuck devotee. He had become a Christian earlier, and so he kept telling me Chuck Smith's daughter was at this Bible study, and I said, well, I don't know. I've never seen Chuck Smith's daughter, but I'll tell you, I met this really, you know, this great gal. She's amazing. She knows the Bible, you know, and so make a long story short, I found out later that I had met Chuck Smith's daughter, too. I just didn't know it. (laughs) She was the one that I was, you know, thinking was really cute and all that. So uh, we met and officially, like, okay, this is Chuck Smith's daughter. And um, on uh, Valentine's Day, uh, I asked her on a date. And May 23rd of 1980, we got married. So we had a pretty pretty quick, uh, courtship,
1: courtship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and of course May 23rd this year we'll celebrate 40 years together so um, <laughs> it's been a great thing so now I am the son-in-law of Pastor Chuck Smith and um, but at this point I I'm more like an evangelist, so it's not like I'm thinking, I mean, Chuck was the only pastor I knew, so it wasn't like I wanted to be a pastor because I didn't think I could even be a pastor. I thought you had to be old and you had to have a family and all that stuff, you know. I'm 22, 23 years old. And, but, you know, I'm, I just like sharing the gospel with my friends and all of that. And, and I, had, I didn't tell you this. I had a job opportunity in Hawaii. I thought, I'm going to move to Hawaii, man. I love to surf and I love to evangelize. And there was a Christian plumber who wanted to hire me, and I was a plumber. Um, so, but you know, that kind of fell through. And uh, then I, <laughs> I had used to manage a surf shop. So I went back and I got a job. I quit the plumbing thing. I went back and I got a job at the surf shop. And um, so we, we got married and all that. And uh, my wife called me at the church and she said, hey, my dad wants to talk to you. So call him at the office. So I called Pastor Chuck and, said, you know, Cheryl said to call and he said, yeah, I I want you to come and work with me at the church. And I said, well, why? Like, what what would I do? And he he said, well, I thought you said you wanted to be in ministry. I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I don't know how to do anything. He said, well, you don't, but that's why I'm asking you to come. I'm going to train you. And he said, you know, we'll give it a try. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Nothing ventured, nothing lost. And I said, well, Chuck, let me pray about it. You know, I needed to I mean, I was glad Chuck was asking me, but I didn't think, I really didn't think I could do it. But I I actually did pray and I felt like the Lord put on my heart that I was to do it. So uh, I said yes. and Gave my two weeks notice at the surf shop. And the next thing you know, I was an intern pastor at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But Chuck was faithful to help me. And so you were there
1: with Chuck for how long?
0: I was there with Chuck for three years. So
1: three years and you're, you're, you're like sitting in front of a fire hose with Chuck. He's training you. He's teaching yeah. you. He's your father-in-law. Yeah. So he has a little more interest in you than some of the other pastors there, most likely. Well, I don't know okay. if he did. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would, would hope, hope he, he did. did. Yeah. <laughs> and so in three years' time, though, you go and take over a church Yeah. after yeah. just so three years of pastoral training. Yeah,
0: training. three years of training with Chuck. And then um, it's funny because about a year— and a half before that, this church, the guy who pastored it, he was an older gentleman who had been a missionary in Central America for like 25 years. And he came back to Southern California. He saw this Calvary thing, and he, Chuck had met him, I think, in Guatemala or something. So he said, uh, he call, he found out, he said, Chuck, I want to do a Calvary Chapel. And Chuck said, okay, go for it. So he, start, he started this church down there, and uh, he, he was like a Pentecostal guy, you know. I think it's As- Assembly of God. And uh, he was a real fiery preacher, but he would always be preaching. And then he'd just go into Spanish, like automatically, because <laughs> he'd been in Central America <laughs> so long. And uh, so after a while, you know, um, the church thing wasn't working out for him. And, and they were sort of having some problems. And um, and Chuck knew about the problems. They had financial problems and things. And one time, I didn't tell you this, one time Chuck looked at me and goes, I'm going to send you down there to fix that. And I just looked at him like, send me? Why? are you gonna send me? I can't, I don't know anything, you know. And then I, that was it. You know, he didn't say anymore. But the guy was gonna go on vacation. He called and he said, Hey Chuck, could you send one of your guys down? So Chuck sends me down. This is Christmas of 1982, maybe. Um no, 1981. Christmas of 1981. He sends me down. This is the first time I ever preached on a Sunday. Ever. Never preached. I did some Bible studies and things, but I never preached. So check sends me down and I, I give this message on this Sunday morning at this church. And um so that was it. My mom, like six months ago, my mom sent me the cassette from that message. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to, to listen to it, though I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but uh so so I I preach, I leave, it's you know, that's the end of it. A year and a half later uh this guy's going on vacation again he says hey Ch- calls chuck he said chuck could you send your son-in-law down to uh fill in for me i'm gonna be gone for three weeks i said uh, chuck said you know brian would you go down and i said oh gosh okay i went down there once here i'll go again so i went down and i filled in for the guy for three sundays and i left and Sunday night I preached I said goodbye you are wonderful people you're all very nice about 30 people in the church and Sweet people, you know, this is God bless you. It's good. I'll, maybe I'll see you again in heaven or something You know <laughs> yeah. and I get home and then go to bed and I it's seven o'clock in the morning my phone rings and it's this guy He says Brian. This is his name was Chuck. This is Chuck. I say yeah. Hi Chuck He says well, thanks for filling in for me mm-hmm. great. Okay, you're welcome Brian. I resigned. I resigned from the <laughs> church <laughs> What? what? Yeah, and I think you're supposed to take it. The Lord gave me a vision. He told me you're supposed to take the church. (laughs) I'm I'm like 25 years old at the time. I said, you know, I don't bear witness with that vision. (laughs) I don't think that was the Lord. So I went and told Chuck, my father-in-law, hey, Chuck called me, and he told me he resigned. He wants me to take the church. And Chuck Smith was like, how dare he try to get you down there? there. Now, the reason why Chuck acted that way is because I just had my second child, my wife and I. So these are his grandchildren that he wants to keep as close to him as possible. So he's really upset now that this guy's trying to get me down there. So Chuck says, "No, you're not going down there. We're going to sell that building, no. and, you know, because they owed the, they owed Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa four hundred thousand oh, bucks." So, so Chuck's like, "You know, we're going to sell that building." And right when he said it, I go, wait, "Wait, wait, 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 No, no, we can't sell. There's people down there. You can't just sell the church, you know." <laughs> so, uh, so anyway. That's how I ended up
1: going to Vista,
0: and um, 1983, um, May of
1: 1983. So you went there in May of 1983. Yeah, that's awesome. I started this church in October of 1983. Did, yeah. But I'd, pre- I'd well, preach. i some s- sermons though sermon. before. <laughs> okay. Well, I preached a few by <laughs> that too.
0: Well, we, you know, officially we moved there in uh, in September okay. of '83. Wow. So, yeah. so
1: fast forward, you pastored there for 13 years, and. Yeah then you moved to uh, London, and you planted a church in London, England, and um, you were there for almost three years, I think, four Four years, years. years. yeah, Yeah.
0: 96 to 2000,
1: so here here you have a a thriving church in Vista, yeah, and God has taken it from, uh, and and we're going to stop talking about Brian in a few minutes, uh, and talk about (laughs) the Bible, and and other things, but I, I think it's good for you to get kind of a flavor of who he is and what God's done in his life. So so you married Chuck's um, uh, daughter, you were a surfer, uh, a plumber, and next thing you know, you're pastoring a church, and it grows to over 2,000 people, and you decide after 13 years, I'm going to move to England mm-hmm. yeah. and plant yeah. a church, <laughs> <The> church. with <laughs> Chuck's right. favorite Grandkids. <laughs> grandkids. You Chuck's favorite grandkids
0: and his favorite and his favorite daughter. (laughs) Let's not let that some get get that.
1: How did you get the passion and heart to go to London? I mean, how does that work?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Well, back in 1989, we took a little trip to Europe. A family, kind of a Chuck was taking a tour, and we went along with him. And we met this young couple from Eastern Europe, and they found out that I was a pastor, and they asked me if I would come and maybe try to do something in uh, is actually a village would you come and try to do something in our village and I just said oh sure yeah we'll come you know I'm a pastor that's what pastors do they come, go to villages and do stuff you know so <laughs> I had no idea what I was uh, agreeing to do at the time but anyway that launched us into this crazy uh, church planting thing into Eastern Europe so that was Yugoslavia where, where the village was which no longer exists today you know it was Broken up into different countries, Serbia and um, uh, Croatia, and some of the different ones. Uh, so, so we went in there and we we ended up doing this evangelism on the street, and we ended up planting a church. And so we were planting churches in Hungary, and in Yugoslavia, and in the Ukraine, and in Russia. And as I was doing that and traveling back and forth and all that, and then you know the, our church bought this castle in Austria and this became like a training center for people coming in from the east and so I was really involved in all that and and then just sort of out of the clear blue the Lord put on my heart what you've been doing in Eastern Europe I want you to go do that in the UK so
1: how old are you now while you're doing this
0: Uh, Um, my first trip there I think I was 31
1: so you know that's that's not the usual format for a young guy who's pastoring a, s- a stable church yeah. to, no, it was to really be over yeah. in Yugoslavia in Eastern Europe planting churches. yeah, And, and yet you're just doing it. Yeah. And it's f- f- from there, you transition how to London. Yeah. So,
0: you know, there was just a sense that what we were doing in Eastern Europe, God wanted to do in London. But I didn't think... Because what we were doing is we were planting churches, and then we were establishing pastors in those churches. And our church was financially funding all of this. We were supporting them. So they were like, we considered them extended staff. They're part of our church staff, but they live in Eastern Europe. And so my idea was, because God was putting that on my heart, that we we would do the same thing in the U.K. We would start in London, and then we'd just go throughout the U.K. and do it. And um, little did I know that God was actually going to have me be the one to do it. So I had all these wonderful vision and dreams. And I'm trying to think of all these guys to get to go do this. You know, like I got this great vision, guys. Come on, you should go do this. And the Lord just spoke to me. It was really funny. He's like, Brian, why would I give you the vision and then send somebody else to do it? So I, you know, I I became very conscious that God was calling me to do it. And that all happened in the course. We went to plant the church. And it was a six-week trip. We took an outreach team. I had sent a team over six months earlier to do the groundwork. And then uh, it was while we were there for the six weeks that God confirmed to me, I'm calling you to do this church. So we planted the church, and there was a couple with us on the trip that were willing to stay for the six months. We would go home. We would apply for visas. We would get the visas, and then we would come back and begin the ministry there. Yeah.
1: So so you planted the church, you were there for four years. Four years, yeah. And and I, I don't at that time I'm sure and even to this day, uh Europe is not the most fertile ground for planting no. churches.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough. It's hard ground. But you know, I, I'm of the conviction that you the need is not the call, the call is the call. And so if the need's the call, then There's plenty of other places to go. And I would have people say that to me, like, what are you going to Europe for, man? Europe's so hard. It's so tough. It's like, well, it's not like I signed up. It's not like I said I want to go to Europe. You know, God called me to go, so that's why we went. And, you know, we've seen some wonderful fruit over the years. Even though the ground is tough, we've seen some amazing things happen, and I told you guys we do. Out of that church plant, we ended up starting a festival that we do every year. We're coming up on our 19th year of doing this festival in the UK. We have about 12,000 people that attend this festival every year. And we have a nationwide ministry. I've been on the radio for 25 years in the UK. So it's just crazy stuff, you know, that you're like, you couldn't write this script for yourself if you tried This is an
1: amazing story. He started this um, festival in in England, in uh, Cornwall, right?
0: yeah we started in north devon which is a uh, adjacent county to cornwall we ended up moving to cornwall
1: and yeah. started off just 12 people or so f- sort of a family thing it's grown to over 12,000 people now every year with bands and people camping and all these speakers and uh, it, it's and it's not predominantly just for christians it's like families who come and want to enjoy a holiday oh, so Jesus. to speak and and food and all these venues and yeah thousands of people come through and they and they get yeah. saved and
0: yeah we've had tons of atheists come to Christ because England, England like every other person in England is an atheist you know it's really crazy I mean you know in America I mean
1: you meet some atheists now and again every, they' everybody's an atheist. <laughs> it's like but but it's amazing thing to, to and, and the reason I want to ask some of these questions was to see how God can take a, a young guy who who knows nothing about the Bible really he's a Catholic he's a plumber, a surfer. He, he really, uh, you know, makes a confession of faith. Uh, God gets hold of his heart. He goes to a Bible study. He, he meets a cute girl uh, who just happens to be the daughter of one of the most uh, impacting pastors of South, you know, California. And, and, and next thing you know, you're under his tutelage. Uh, God had a plan for your life. God had a purpose <laughs> did, for your life did. that you would yeah. have never, ever dreamed of.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, sometimes even even recently, I walk across the, the parking lot of the church, and I think back to when I first came. And if you would have told me back then, someday you will pastor the church, I would have thought, "Oh, well, you're out of here." <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it was like the farthest you couldn't have convinced me of that.
1: There's no way. So, so right now, uh, tell us what what's Brian Broderson's passion
0: well missions is missions and church planting really is my passion I mean I love pastoring I, I feel like I'm a pastor probably more than anything I love teaching the Bible I do that regularly um, you know I I'm the director of this festival I'm the uh, president of our Bible college um, but I but I would have to say church planting and missions is that's where like, I just get fired up, you know, when I think so, about
1: it. So you oversee Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which has the Bible college, it has the castle, it has all kinds of, all yeah. kinds of resources. One of the things that I, I think you also oversee that has a huge impact on Southern California is a K-Wave, the radio yeah. station there. Tell us yeah. a little yeah. bit about that.
0: Yeah, K-Wave radio station. We, we actually have a, a 107.9. Uh, I noticed when we got here, I said, John, you guys have the same uh on the dial we're 107.9 as well in 1985 uh calvary chapel under the direction of pastor chuck smith uh purchased this little radio station that was uh, located in san Clemente, and um and chuck just said you know we're going to just turn this into a bible teaching station and there were other christian stations on a lot of times it was music and uh so he wanted to have a, a bible teaching format so 1985 purchased that station, and now, um, and over the years we went through. We had a whole nationwide network of 500 stations and all this, and that that all sort of fell apart. But but this station, uh, we've kept the station. The church is, uh, owns the station. We found out um, last year that we are the number one Christian talk radio station in the United States, and that just kind of blew all of our minds. You know, we thought. Well, wait, wait. You mean California, right? I said, no, we mean the USA. And so we were uh, there. You know, there's networks that are bigger than us. You know, like Salem or something. You know, they have a ton of a uh, ton of stations, but we're uh, individual station. We're the number one Bible teaching station for the so, country. So,
1: what's your listing audience? Do you have any idea number what? Oh gosh. Uh,
0: well, you know, potentially we I, we broadcast over most of Southern California. So you know, you got about 20 million. 20 people. million people. But we don't have twenty million people right.
1: listening. I wish we did, but, but hundreds of thousands of people listening to the gospel and the, you know the teaching of Scripture and being invited to Calvary Chapels all over yeah. Southern California. We were talking about the power of radio today, and uh, when we first uh, got into it a long time ago with Calvary Satellite Network, which was something that Chuck established, I was telling Brian a story how a guy was listening to the radio and pastor from Fort Lauderdale was preaching and he pulled over to the side of the road and he prayed to receive Christ and and called the Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale and said what what should I do now I'm here I live in Gulf Breeze I got saved today he goes oh there's a Calvary Chapel it's a pastor named John Spencer you go to his church and he came here and um, told me a story We baptized him. He kept hanging around. He kind of ended up on staff for a while. Then he went and planted a church in Alaska. And uh, the power of radio. radio. I mean, it's just amazing what God can do. It's the power of God's word through radio. It's a powerful vehicle. So so let's talk a little bit about Scripture because I know you're – you're a Bible scholar. You're you're working right now. You're going through a, a, a study program at Wheaton. Uh, you yeah. love the Scripture. You're an apologist, um, and there's there's a lot of terms you hear about Scripture. Scripture's inspired. It's inerrant. It's authoritative, um, and those are applied to the Bible. Uh, yeah. What do those actually mean? And and how do we know for certain that those are real when it comes to yeah. Scripture?
0: Yeah, it's so important. And, you know, when John asked me to come out and do the, to, to be here tonight, um, I, I thought, you know, this is a topic that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And my son, who's about Neil's age, he pastors a church up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, he, one day he said to me, he said, Dad, you know what we have going on right now? He said, we have a biblically illiterate culture critiquing a biblically illiterate church and you know in the culture today you y- you probably noticed if you're paying attention there's there's so much attack on the bible now this is it, i mean every generation has its battles over the bible right but i but i think now it's kind of like the gloves are off and you know they're they're always looking uh to undermine you know the authority of scripture the truthfulness of scripture and so forth so, I, I feel really passionate about us as as the church, um, you know, just being able to give a good defense for the faith and for the scriptures. Because in the end, you know, everything we believe is based on this book. Yeah. So, if this book isn't accurate, like some suggest that it's not, then, you know, we, we've got some trouble. But it is accurate, and we, we can, there's plenty of evidence for that. So, you know, you talk about these terms, uh, you know, the inspiration of scripture. Well, that means. Uh, it's not, uh, some people say, well, yeah, scripture is inspired, you know, like, like that poem, you know, that was a great poem. It was so inspiring. Well, that's not what biblical inspiration means. Biblical inspiration means that, uh, the, the word, John knows this, the word in the Greek, uh, is literally, Paul says in the new King James, I think many of the translations say the same thing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. But the term there is all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the literal meaning of it. So what it's telling us is that, uh, like Peter says it, that no prophecy of Scripture, and that doesn't mean prophecy like Iran. That means like God's spoken word means when God's speaking, it's prophetic. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation means that it did not originate with a person, but it originated with God. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So when we say the Bible is inspired, we mean that God breathed through these men the words that he wanted on these pages. And then you have the uh, inerrancy of Scripture, which simply means that the Scripture is without error. And so we have, of course, the Bible. We had the original documents. We no longer have those documents today. We have thousands of manuscripts that show us um, what the originals actually said. So we we can have confidence that we have a Bible that is, it's not um, filled with errors. We can say that it is inerrant; it is without error, and um, and then authoritative. It would follow if this is God's word, then it's authoritative. God, you know, if it's if it's God's word, then it, it carries authority.
1: So, so a lot of people will attack the Bible and say, well, it's it's not scientifically. Contiguous with what goes on in the world of science, it's not historically accurate, and so how can you trust it? And 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 yet, I think we both would agree that the Bible is. And so, tell us a little bit about what you think about that area of scripture. Yeah,
0: and and you know, of course, you've in science, for example. I mean, you've got you've got you know plenty of people in the sciences who would just Mock the idea that the Bible could actually be the Word of God, but then you got a whole bunch of other scientists that would stand firm on it and say, "No, it is." So, so your your scientific credentials are not necessarily going to be whether how you're going to prove whether these are the scriptures or not, because you got you know equally brilliant people on both both sides of the of the argument. But when you look at um, the Bible interestingly you know the bible all, all ancient religious books have sci- known scientific errors in them you can read them and you think well that you know obviously the the quran for example uh says that the sun sets in a puddle of mud now we know the sun doesn't set in a puddle of mud, right but muhammad apparently didn't know that but uh, but the bible you know it never says any anything like that so we have to of course we have to um distinguish between uh, what's really philosophy masquerading as science versus what is actual science? And evolutionism, naturalism would be more philosophy masquerading as science. But when you when you get down to the hard scientific kinds of things, the Bible is uh, completely uh, consistent with all that we know. Uh, you know, all that we really know scientifically. And the Bible says things that are scientifically accurate that we didn't even know till relatively recently, and and somehow Moses knew, you know, three thousand years ago. Somehow Moses knew that the life of all flesh is in the blood. How do you know yeah. that? I mean, you know, nobody else knew that back <laughs> then, you know, but Moses did. Well, because God knew it. Um, Two thousand years ago, Paul the apostle knew that he knew the second law of thermodynamics before they discovered it in 1850. Uh, He said that all of creation is in a process of decay. Romans Romans eight, right? So it's like, you look at that. It's like, wow, these are, these are scientific statements, you know? So when we hear people today say, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's scientifically inaccurate. The best thing to do is say, well, can you give me an example of that? And, you
1: know, people, evolution. You know that we prove well. That's that's a different story. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's. You know, I would say to that, you know, say like like Brian said. Well, show me where it's not scientifically accurate, and, and they yeah. really can't, other than talking philosophy or exactly. You know. Yeah. So yeah. So, so you've got um, and 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 what we want to try and do tonight is just talk about uh, the security and the authority of the scripture. That you can trust it. You know, we're living in a culture that wants to throw the scripture to the to the side and, and act as if it's not true. So e- even the uh, whole historical part of the scripture. Yeah. What, what what's your yeah. response to that?
0: You know, um, I, r- I read this article years and years ago, and um, it's it still stands. Uh, true today and this this is an article from time magazine a quote i just want to read this quote from time magazine back in uh back in the 1970s uh, time magazine had an article on the bible and that this is just a, a little uh statement from it it said after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear the bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege even on the critics own terms Historical fact: The scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began the attack. <laughs> so, you know, again, if people would say, "Well, you know, the Bible is scientifically inaccurate," all you got to say is, "Well, give me an example," because there's no, never has there, has anybody, anyone ever proven that there's a scientific, or uh, historical contradiction in the scriptures. And as a matter of fact, as time goes on, and of course through archaeology, uh, you know, there was a time when the rationalists said that Moses couldn't write the books of the Bible because there was no writing at the time. Remember, they said that there was no writing at the time of Moses. And then the archaeologists discovered a library that dated back to Abraham in the city that Abraham came from, this massive library. So remember, Abraham lived 400 years before Moses did. So, So, you know, those kinds of things. John, you've been to Caesarea. And you know that wonderful, uh, remember uh, the the critics said that Pontius Pilate was a fictitious person, that, that Pontius Pilate was made up. There was no such person in history known as Pontius Pilate. None of the records showed that this guy ever, he was not the governor of Judea and all this sort of stuff. Well, you know, some time ago, it's a while ago now, they were digging around Caesarea and they found this stone. And on the stone, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. The very dates that the bible says he was there so those kinds of things you know archaeology has uh, affirmed what the bible says uh, about you know the history of the time
1: you know another thing you you hear sometimes about the scripture and i know people have said this to me many times and maybe you think this sometimes is people read the bible and they say you know there, there's an Old Testament God and there's a New Testament God. And I like the New Testament God, but I don't like the Old Testament God. And and yet uh, I think we believe that they're the same God. And so how would you answer that one if yeah. someone mm-hmm. came to you, Brian, and said, you know, yeah. I can't believe in that Old Testament God? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And people have said that to me. And and I always say I say, well, you haven't really read the Old Testament. Uh, obviously you haven't because if you did you would you would understand and i and i try to tell people look remember the old testament you're you're condensing a few thousand years of history into a relatively small (laughs) text and and you have to understand that a lot of that like the prophets for example a lot of the reason why god appears you know to some to be an angry god is because um that the Children of Israel are continually rebelling against him and he's continually calling them to repentance through the prophets. So that's a lot of what the, the Old Testament is. But but you know, as you read through those, those books, you find some of the most amazing statements about God's love, his mercy, his graciousness. My favorite psalm, I think, is Psalm 103. Um, uh, the Lord is full of compassion. He's merciful. He's slow to anger uh he, as far as our um our iniquities he's removed them as far as the east is from the west as a father pities his children so the lord pities those who fear him i mean i read that's like well that's amazing stuff you know yeah uh, exodus chapter 34 you know where Moses is saying you know god show me your glory and the lord passes by the lord merciful and gracious full of compassion you know um so i i, ju- I just say people like you know really you need to take a closer look at at the Old Testament and understand what's going on, and, and of course, and and you know, John, this is not new. I mean, people have. There were people in the second century that tried to throw out the Old Testament, make a distinction between the the Marcionites. You know, decided that the God of the Old Testament, I
1: get rid of him. You well, know, when you read the Old Testament too, for instance, like um, how God loved Nineveh. Yes, you yes. Know. <laughs> great example. Yeah, yeah. And he was, yeah. Jonah yeah. didn't Jonah love him, but God yeah, did. <laughs> They loved them. Yeah. And and you see that all through the Old Testament. And, and you know, so some of the other things that I wanted to hear your response to is we live in a culture now that um, there's all kinds of issues that are um, addressed in Scripture. And maybe sometimes we as believers don't know how to respond to these things, what to say to them. Some of them are uh this whole gender confusion uh the the whole uh sexuality issue with homosexuality uh comes to uh, surface again and again and again and how we respond to it. how does the scripture respond to it how do we respond to it and and kind of our thoughts and approach based upon this understanding and and response to the that the bible is authoritative authoritative. it's it's inspired And, and yeah. it is God's word, so, so and how do we mix that with this compassionate, loving God, and in a culture that has really done something with this whole gender thing that's never occurred before?
0: Yeah, yeah, never occurred. Yeah, and this is, I, I think we have to be th- thoughtful about this, you know, and um, because there are people involved and there are people that God loves despite their behavior and of course we all behaved badly as well and god had mercy on us i think when it comes to the lgbt thing i've thought a lot about this and i've you know written on it occasionally and i've had numerous uh, not only conversations but i've engaged in ministry with people who came out of the lgbt lifestyle former gay activist and so forth and you know I'm, i i want to sometimes listen to them like you know where do you think I've asked a number of guys, where do you think the church needs to get together on this? And, and they're it's they're pretty good at telling you, like, you know, because they really do love the Lord. So um, I think that there was a time when although the Bible doesn't put homosexuality in a category by itself, I think we did do it as Christians. I, I really do think we did. It was kind of like, well, that's all these other sins. These are bad, but this is the worst sin over here. You know, we not maybe not intentionally, but I think we did that. I think we maybe even misinterpreted some biblical text. So I think first of all we have to stop doing that. I had a lady come up to me uh, a while back, and it was it was a it was a really funny moment. She she came up and she was a she was a businesswoman. She'd hired a person, and she found out they were gay afterwards, and she was distressed about that. She was a Christian lady, and she said, oh, what, I don't know what to do. You know what? Do, what do you think?" And she was all. And I said, well, let me ask you a question before we go any further. I said, do you have any other sinners that work for you? <laughs> <laughs> and she just looked at me and she got this smile on her face. She goes, oh, okay, I get it. You know? I said, look, you know, we have to stop treating people like this is the worst sin and like you know, this is the unpardonable sin. This is an abomination. Because lots of the things are an abomination. A just, an unjust weight is an abomination. Pride is an abomination. Yeah, you know, so, so I think we have to take responsibility for having maybe overstated the case over the years. But on the other hand, you know, some people, you know, they call themselves progressive Christians now. They say, well, you know, the Bible does, you know, it's all about love. If you love somebody, it doesn't matter if it's same right. sex, opposite sex, and we can't go there either. So we have to really wisely navigate this. And I think we we have to stand firm on scripture. We have to speak the truth in love, you know. And I this is what I will say oftentimes to, you know, people who are LGBT. Um, I would just, I always preface it, preface it with, look, I'm going to talk to you about the way things are if there is a God. If there is not a God, you can do anything you want and who am i to tell you that you can't do what you want to do and if you have those attractions then why why should i be able to have tell you not to but if there is a god and if he's spoken about it then we have to listen so i i try to bring them back around to let's let's get back to where there's a god now like i said and you know this john there's a there are these so-called progressive christians who want to say well the bible is okay with same sex relations and all of that and I mean to me in some ways that's even a, a more difficult battle than just with the, the the broader culture. But we've we've seen many uh, we've seen uh, people coming out of the LGBT world and through love and patience and a lot of grace and um, so I, I think that the church is in a great position to to see a harvest from that culture So
1: we were talking about this earlier and you made an interesting statement about how this whole issue is different now in our culture than it's ever been in the past even in the roman times yeah and and say say something about that how how it's different
0: yeah yeah well this is um it's funny because a lot of these progressives try to um you know they try to make comparisons with the Roman world, and they they actually try to say that well today uh, even you know Paul was writing about a certain kind of homosexuality like a rape culture uh, an abuse culture we're talking about love we're talking about marriage we're talking about this beautiful thing so Paul's not talking about that he's talking about something else so he so he doesn't even address it so this is okay over here you know so you have to go back no no this is what Paul was talking about um, but. The thing that I think is really shocking, and I think this ties into kind of more like the end times theme, you know, that has been talked about the last couple of weeks. You have to think about this. In the history of the world, uh, the Obergefell decision was the most radical governmental decision in the whole history of the world in regard to, uh, and you could probably put the Roe versus Wade there as well, but where you have uh, a government taking a position that is absolutely contrary to the biblical norm and trying to make that the cultural norm so in all of history although there have been same-sex relationships of course and there have even momentarily been same-sex marriages in history in the past it was never the norm and it was it never lasted because it was so not the norm you know it was nero had a You know, he married a guy, but he married a horse, too. So, you know, (laughs) he he was confused. Um, But everybody knew that this was not the right thing to do. But now, of course, we're told, like, no, this isn't just good. This is really, really good. So that, to me, is a pretty radical thing. And then when you take it a step further into the transgender world and you take it a step further to now, there is no binary. You know, there's not male and female and all of that. I mean, you... I think the whole sexual revolution is really, it's more a revolt against the rule of God than anything else because it's trying to change the way God made things and the way things have always been throughout all of human history.
1: Yeah, so what's interesting about this is we're living in a time when what from from every generation past was seen as abnormal, uh, in many ways perverse, we live in a culture now, as uh, Brian is saying, has now come to the place where we want to normalize something that never in the history of mankind has been normalized or, or, or embraced. And we have a culture that has said, no, we, we're going to normalize it. We're going to make it uh, acceptable in the eyes of everybody. And there's an mm-hmm. enormous amount of pressure upon your kids, mm-hmm. upon the, the generation below many of us and below that to accept this as normal, ordinary lifestyle. And God help you if you don't see it yes. that way. And yeah. we know that Scripture doesn't see it that way. Yeah. We know that no generation that's ever been alive has ever seen it that way. And it's one yeah. of the signs, it's one of the ways that we know that we're living in a time that's so different yeah. than it's ever been before. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the attack on the Scripture, it's attack on marriage, it's attack on gender. Everything yeah. wants to be turned upside down. And I think, you know, we we come back to, and that's why I wanted to talk to Brian about this. We come back to how do we know what's real and normal, and we come back to this. We come back to the authoritative, inspired Word of God. Where else are you going to get the truth? Uh, It's not going to come through law. (laughs) It's It's, not going to come through government government, figuring out what's best for us all. You know, because we know there's yeah. a lot of laws out there right now that are not best for us. Yeah. Uh, we we yeah, were talking we, about we marijuana, marijuana in California. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it, it w- Yeah. I went to jail for,
0: <laughs> for possession of marijuana. Recently? When I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, because now, you know, it's. it's I legal. know. So they don't hassle me. <laughs> <laughs> but as a teenager or whatever. But as a, as a, as a surfer, you know, we were smoking yeah, marijuana back they, then. I heard yeah, they I, did
1: that in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: so i got busted and carted <laughs> off to jail and got on probation and all that stuff and now you know the police just walk by kids out there they have an 18 year old age yeah, limit yeah, right. you know the sure. cops don't do anything sure. about it yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah it's it's just taking all of those things that um, we even know intuitively these aren't right but we're normalizing them and 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 again kind of glorifying them really you know not just because it's not like you need to accept this only you need to celebrate this and if you don't celebrate this then you you are a problem and this is the western world now the rest of the world isn't necessarily going along with it you know the africans for example there's a gigantic split in the anglican church and the methodist church as well over these very issues the southern hemisphere uh, christians are like you guys are nuts up there we're not going with it the bible says this and, you know, it's the, it's the Western world that's trying to impose these things on these other nations and, and so forth. So, and, and, you know, some of their laws, obviously, are problematic as well, you know, putting people to death for, yeah, sure. yeah. you know, that's wrong too. So, but I, I do think, and, you know, we talked a little bit about the transgender thing, and I told you I would tell a quick yes, story. Yes, um, So our festival in England that we do every year uh, we have a number, we have about 500 volunteers that come from all over the, the country to be part of the festival, and we do an online registration for them. So when they come, uh, they have a, a two-day orientation, and then they're ready to go. But we've all g- got all their information and so forth. So a couple years ago, um, everybody was checking in for the orientation, and uh, somebody called me over and said, hey, we need to talk to you for a minute and uh, they said, you know, we got the application, and it's for Michelle, and then they pointed to Michelle, and Michelle was clearly Michael, but, you know, had filled out the application as a a transgender woman, basically, and so, you know, all of a sudden, it's like, what are we going to do, and I just thought, oh, gee, Lord, what are we going to do, so I just Kind of shot up an arrow. Prayer, Lord, show us what to do. You know, they've come. They they registered online. We accepted them a long time ago, and now there's I mean, you know, there's a hundred plus people standing around. What am I going to do? And I felt like the Lord said, just go with it. Don't 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 worry about it. Just let it go. So okay, we let's don't worry. We'll just process them. Get them get them in. Get them involved. Well, to make a long story short, this guy, uh, I found out his story. Um, he had been married three times and after three uh, failed marriages, he just thought, well, you know, maybe I'm just not to be meant to even be a man. So he went and got a sex change after he got a sex change. Somebody shared the gospel with him and he became a Christian, but he'd never been taught. And so now he doesn't even know what to do. You know, he's got a sex change. He's Michelle. Now he, he's just confused. So he comes confused And we basically just loved on the guy for a week. He sat every time I was preaching. He was sitting in the front row on the edge of his seat. And by the end of the week, he had been befriended and loved on by tons of Christians. And he told me by the end of the week, he said, I have never, ever heard the Bible like I heard it this week. And I've never been touched by God like I have been this week. We never talked about his situation. And we just figured, okay, God, you're at work. So, you know, I think when it comes to the transgender thing, I think we have to be really wise because I do think there are people who genuinely have gender dysphoria. I think that's a real thing. And those people need compassion. They need care. They need help. Uh, But I also think there's another thing going on. And there is a sexual revolution. And the revolutionaries don't have gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. They want to overthrow God's... uh, God's world. They they want to implement their world, and so for those people, uh, they need Jesus. But I think they all there also needs to be resistance to that, and and a little more of a pushback when you when you recognize that it's an agenda versus a person who just genuinely needs you know love and patience and counsel and that sort of thing.
1: So so before we close, anything you want to add or share from uh, a biblical uh, context that has to do with, um, you know, all all of this I think we're talking about right now has to do with end time scenario, but anything prophetically or issues that are occurring that you would say right now, uh, excluding the coronavirus that you want to speak about (laughs) that have to do with prophecy or the scripture in that manner.
0: Well, I, I could never even begin to improve on what Ray did, I'm sure, because Ray is the prophecy expert. I had Ray on the radio with me a few weeks ago, and he, you know, he wrote that second in the trilogy that he's writing. Or He told me now there's going to be five books, I think. Um, but I looked at Ray, and I said, Ray, you know, the Czech prophecy mantle has fallen on you. You are the guy now. Um, and, you know, I, I believe... It, I believe in prophecy, of course, and all that, but that's not my emphasis, you know? But I would say, and I think that with all the social madness that we have going on, I think that that is pointing us towards something. You know, I think that we have to think, like when we think about, um, like we've already said, that things have now been changed. For all of history, it's been God's way in, in regard to these things, and now it's flipped over. So I think that's, Pretty significant to me. Uh, Israel is always going to be probably the main thing, though, that we look at. I read a book a few years ago, and I've I've always believed that the reestablishing of the state, I've always believed that was a fulfillment of prophecy and all that. I read a book a few years ago called, um, it's just called Jerusalem. It's written by a guy named uh, Simon uh, Sebeg Montefiore. And Simon Montefiore is the great grandson of one of the Jewish philanthropists who um, you know, was part of the Zionist movement back in the early part of the 20th century. He's not a believer. Uh, he's not a Christian. Uh, he's not even like an Orthodox Jew. But, but he wrote a book on the history of Jerusalem. And when I read this book, it became so crystal clear to me that the modern state of Israel is nothing less than a miracle. And the fact that the Jews have uh, authority over Jerusalem is nothing less than a miracle. Because for 2,000 years, try what they may, they could not get a foot in the door for 2,000 years. And, you know, when you look at the War of Independence in 1948, the Jews, they should have never won that war. They were, I mean, not only, it wasn't like, Uh, they were a small army uh they didn't under resourced and god came through with miraculous things no it's like when the dust settled it's like everybody thought the jews lost because they didn't really do anything great
1: but somehow they won like the trump election we were all shocked (laughs) (laughs) very similar
0: (laughs) so i so i i think that israel um you know, it's funny. I was listening to a, a guy the other day that I really like who's talking about the world. He's talking about revival in the future and he's kind of looking at the trends. He's a really good uh, culturally. He's he's really wise when it comes to culture. And he's talking about the cultural trends and where things are going. And his theory is that everything's moving away from Europe and it's going to Asia and we're going to see all this development over there. And in the context, he's hoping for revival. But he, I think, you know, you need to go back and read some prophecy because um, regardless of what's happening in the world trends you know back in the 1970s um, uh, we had an idea about the time frame for things right we the there's a fig tree prophecy uh, you know the generation that sees the, the fig tree blossom is is you know this generation will not pass till all these things come happen and so the fig tree blossomed in 1948 Uh, a a generation is 40 years 1988 Jesus is coming back seven years subtracted from that is 1981 the rapture is going to be in 1981 (laughs) now you know nobody came out and and actually said that exactly but they got really really close to that and so of course that did not happen and then uh you know Russia was doing this and Russia and everything and then Russia just kind of disappeared and then the Muslim nations resurfaced. You know, in the 1930s, did you know that people back then were predicting that Islam would go out of existence within 20 years? That's how dead Islam was back in those uh, early part of the 20th century after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the First World War and all of that. And um, who would have ever dreamed there going to be like an Islamic revival? So all of a sudden we're looking at Ezekiel and we're thinking, well, wait, these, this is Iran and this is Sudan and this is, oh my goodness. And this is Islamic world, you know? And so, and then we had the 10 nation confederation in Europe and then the European union came and got 25 nations and then people are dropping out and Britain just Brexited out of the thing. And you know what? And I just say, well, you know what? The Bible says that all of these things all these things revolve around the mediterranean world and around israel and the roman empire and the roman empire according to daniel chapter 9 is going to be revived again now whether the european union is that we don't know but it still could be so i i think all of these things you know i'm not i'm not watching the news or reading the papers so much looking for the prophecy stuff because I just know that, well, Jesus is going to come back. I know that for sure. So I'm more like, where can we plant another <laughs> church? <laughs> Let's get another church planted. Let's get the gospel preached. And, you know, and I believe in the rapture and I'm planning on going when the Amen. Lord comes. But, you know, it just kind of leave yeah. the the details and the timing yeah. with him on that.
1: So so what we wanted to try and do in these, these three series was... Uh, Ray came and, you know, he, he talked to us about the Cyrus coin. He shared what's going on in, in the East. And then Tom Doyle came and he shared with us about, you know, uh, really Tom didn't do uh, much with scripture, but he, he told us about all these amazing personal experience with the Muslim nation. And he tried to challenge our hearts about, how to respond to these people how needy they are and how how they're they're wanting us to see them and talk to them and share with them kind of, kind of like you said about those transgender people they just they, they don't understand some of them are caught in things that they may never even heard the gospel but uh, compassion and love and uh, ask Brian to come to to just talk a little bit about the heart for the scripture and the and, and to see a guy who who God has used I mean uh, he, he raised up a young surfer from Huntington, from a Catholic background, a broken family who, who had no intention whatsoever to be in ministry, and God just has used him all over the world in a, fe- in a phenomenal way, and, be- and it's been based on uh, his uh, love and understanding and the validity and veracity and power of God's Word. Amen? Amen. Hey, let's stand together. Give Brian a warm uh, applause. We do that. So, so, So once again. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join us again as we dive into the scripture
0: going verse by verse here at Coastline Calvary Chapel.